0: Bill Buckner was a Major League Baseball player who played for 22 years. He was drafted at the age of 17 right out of high school by the L.A. Dodgers and would later play for the Cubs, Red Sox, Angels, and Kansas City Royals before retiring in 1990. He was an All-Star one year, won the batting title in 1980, and was a better-than-average player and a wonderful teammate. Last Monday, Buckner died at the age of 69, surrounded by his family. They issued the following statement upon his death. After battling the disease of dementia, Bill Buckner passed away early in the morning hours of May 27th, surrounded by his family. Bill fought with courage and grit as he did all things in life. And here's the part that I found most encouraging. They said, our hearts are broken, but we are at peace knowing Bill is in the arms of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Sadly, however, Bill Buckner's claim to fame was not his 22 years as a major leaguer, but an error that he made in the 1986 World Series. Boston at the time was under what had long been referred to as the Curse of the Bambino, that went back decades when Boston traded away Babe Ruth to the hated New York Yankees in 1918. Earlier, they had won a World Series, but ever since that trade, Boston had struggled to win the pennant, much less make the World Series. And in 1986, it seemed like that curse would finally be lifted. Boston was playing the New York Mets for the World Series, a title that had eluded them for for decades, It was the sixth game. Boston was leading the series three games to two. The game went into the bottom of the tenth inning with Boston leading the Mets five to three. All they needed was three outs and the title would be theirs. New York, however, tied it with two runs and then they put a runner in scoring position on second base. Mookie Wilson then came to the plate he worked the count to 3-2 off reliever Bob Stanley. And then with a the runner in scoring position, Mookie bounced a slow, routine ground ball up the first baseline on the 10th pitch of his at bat. A play that Buckner, who was playing first base at the time, had fielded probably tens, if not hundreds of thousands of times. Buckner went to his left and went down to snag the ball behind first base and he then watched the ball roll through his legs into right field. Knight scored from second giving the Mets a 6-5 can you believe it win. Two nights later the Mets took game 7 and the World Series title. Well as you can imagine the Red Sox fans along with the media could not forgive Buckner. If you've ever played sports, you know that everyone makes mistakes. Even routine ground balls can go right through a fielder's glove. I remember a couple of years ago, Connie and I were at the Colonial Golf Game PGA Tour in Fort Worth, Texas. And I was watching a professional golfer, and it warmed my heart to notice that it took him three shots to get out of the greenside bunker. And I turned to Connie and I said, you have no idea how good that makes me feel. (laughs) You know, Buckner for his error was hounded for the rest of his career. Three years after he retired in 1990, he moved his family to Idaho to escape the taunts and the criticism from the fans and the media there in the New England area. And he lived his life in seeming obscurity and peace. Twenty years after his error in 1986, the Red Sox had a reunion at Fenway Park for that baseball team that did indeed make it to the World Series. Buckner and his teammates were invited to attend, but Bill refused to go. He retained a bitterness for how his family had been treated. But time, and finally winning a World Series heals all wounds. And in 2004, the curse of the Bambino finally ended as Boston swept the St. Louis Cardinals to win the World Series, and the fans and Buckner decided that what they would do is forget the past and celebrate the future. Four years later, in 2008, after Boston had won its second World Series, Buckner was invited back to throw out the ceremonial first pitch of the new season. And on that day out from under a massive American flag that was draped over the green monster, Buckner was introduced to the crowd and he walked slowly to the mound to a standing ovation that lasted nearly two minutes. And all was forgiven. The left-hander with tears in his eyes delivered the ceremonial first pitch, a strike to his former teammate Evans at the Fenway as the Fenway faithful roared. And Buckner said this. He said, I really had to forgive. Not the fans of Boston, per se, but I would have to say in my heart, I had to forgive the media for what they put me and my family through. Just so you know, I've done that. And I'm over that. You know, it took a long time for Buckner to not only forgive himself for that error, but also to forgive the people who had taunted him and criticized him. And to find a successful 22 years in baseball by one single error. Now, I tell that story as a reminder that we all need to be forgiven. Not only do we need to be the recipients of forgiveness, we also need to be its givers. And one of the greatest and grandest and most glorious truths in all the Bible is that you and I, whose forgiveness we need most, have been forgiven by God. Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, we have been forgiven. And then beyond that, we've been given the capacity to forgive I want you to turn again to the book of Colossians Colossians chapter 1 as you're turning and locating that passage that we read from let me just mention that the book of Colossians was written to Christians that in all probability Paul had never met face to face the church at Colossae was founded in all probability by a man named Epaphras who was one of Paul's co-workers and when Paul was in the city of Ephesus. He sent Epaphras over to that neighboring city, which was about 100 miles from Ephesus, and encouraged Epaphras to, well, to do evangelism, to do missions work. And people got saved. And later, Paul wrote them a letter. And in the verses of Scripture that we read from, Paul is praying that the saints there would be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in all respects. And one of the aspects of pleasing him is to give thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And then in verses 13 and 14, he sums up the greatest of those blessings that are ours in Christ, in that the Father has rescued us from the domain or dominion of darkness and transferred us to Christ's kingdom where we're given redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Notice he says that in verse 13, he says, rather verse 12, he says that we are to give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light because he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness he's brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves i want you to observe carefully that paul makes plain that there are only two possible kingdoms in which people are going to live you are either in the kingdom of god or you are in the kingdom of satan I want to be very careful what I say next because I don't want anyone going, blowing a gasket or freaking out because I do believe in a future literal kingdom where all the promises that God gave in the Old Testament related to the nation of Israel are going to indeed find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But, just because there's a future literal kingdom does not mean that there is also a Spiritual kingdom today, where Christ is ruling. And you and I, by faith in Jesus Christ, are part of that kingdom. And we have been transferred from Satan's rule and reign to that of Christ. And there's only two possibilities, there's no middle ground. Paul says that Satan's kingdom is characterized as darkness. Darkness refers to spiritual ignorance and, and to blindness. It is a picture of sin and evil deeds, and darkness represents the domain of Satan, his kingdom, his authority. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that we live in a world that's been temporarily, and the optimum word there is temporarily given over to Satan. And Satan rules and reigns. There's spiritual and moral darkness prevailing in our world. And so the picture here is of a world apart from Jesus Christ that is desperate and hopeless. And sadly, unbelievers are spiritually ignorant and excluded from the life of God because of the hardness of their heart. They love their sin and they don't want to come to the light of God where their evil deeds will be exposed. They're under the dominion of this world force of darkness that's headed by Satan himself and there's no middle ground. Please understand that there are not multiple religious options available to mankind. People are either in the kingdom of Jesus Christ under his lordship or they are in Satan's domain of darkness under his authority. By the way, that word, dominion, domain or dominion, as it's translated in the NIV, indicates an active power or energy that Satan exerts over those who are his. It's a dominion that is characterized by intellectual, moral, and spiritual darkness. So that no matter how one's IQ may be, no matter how successful a person may have been, no matter how expansive their financial portfolio might be, they are subject to the power and the authority and the dominion of Satan. Friend, no matter how musically gifted you may be, no matter how athletically endowed and honored you may be, apart from Jesus Christ this morning, you lie in the power of the evil one. And people can give the appearance of worldly success. They can be civil in their behavior. They can respect others. They can have children who score high on the ACT. All of those things notwithstanding, Paul says that people apart from Jesus Christ are under the power of the evil one, energized by the domain of darkness. And again, it's not to suggest for one moment that people who are in the kingdom of Satan are not relatively nice and good people. Many of them are faithful to their mates. They love their children. They hold down responsible jobs. They're good neighbors. They're not lawbreakers. They are as outraged as we are when we see the evil in our world. They're church members in many respects, but they're under the domain and dominion of darkness. And they need to be transferred, translated, uprooted to the kingdom of God. Now, you might be wondering, Doug, why are you emphasizing that so? Move on. Well, friend, the reason is unless you diagnose your problem correctly, you will forever be applying an inadequate solution and remedy. It's sort of like being diagnosed with cancer and going home and thinking that the best treatment is going to be taking an aspirin daily. That's not going to solve your problem. And it's not until relatively good people in the world see their true condition, as God sees it, that they're going to have that problem solved. What they need to do is they need to hear the gospel. Man's desperate condition requires more than self-help techniques. It involves more than seeing Jesus as your buddy and sort of your coach in the sky you know, that's not going to solve your problem before God. So what's required? What's needed to move from the authority of darkness to the kingdom of God's Son? Well, Paul says here you must be rescued. You need to be transferred to that radically different kingdom. And God's rescue implies that we cannot rescue ourselves. God is the one alone who has the power to overcome the evil prince of darkness and to pull off such a rescue. And it's almost like you and I are in a hostage situation to the devil. We're out there doing his will. We're lost and we're blinded. We're enslaved to Satan. We're free only to do what he wants us to do. And we cannot follow God because we're chained to our sin. And all that you and I can do at that point in time is to cry out to God for mercy and to lay hold of God's only solution by faith, which is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about in these verses. He says in verse 13 again, he says he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He's brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption The forgiveness of sins. That word redemption, especially in the first century, applied to the release of a prisoner of war where you would pay the price of a ransom. It applied to the freeing of a slave through paying a price, purchasing that slave. One commentator wrote this, In the Old Testament, Property, animals, persons, and the nations were all redeemed by the payment of a price. In all these cases of redemption, there was a decisive and, listen, costly intervention. Somebody paid the price necessary to free property from mortgage, animals from slaughter, and persons from slavery, even death. And then this man writes the following, In the case of our redemption from slavery to sin and Satan, the price was the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus died as a substitute for sinners. He paid the penalty that God decreed you and I deserving of because of sin. And because of that, we now have redemption. We have forgiveness of sins. We've been released from the debt of our sins because Christ paid the debt by his death on the cross. And you and I lay hold of God's redemption and forgiveness by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for us. Keep your finger here in Colossians, and I want you to turn to the book of Acts real quickly. I want us to see it because it's so worth our time. Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. Paul here is giving a defense of himself before King Agrippa. And he talks about the appearance that Jesus Christ gave to him on the road to Damascus when he was persecuting the church, before he was a believer. And Jesus appeared to him, and he said in verse 14, he said, I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Then I asked, verse 15, who are you? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me, I will rescue you. And by the way, notice how these, this statement of Jesus so beautifully parallels what Paul says in Colossians 1. He says, I will rescue from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you then, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive... Forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. Now notice the last four words. By faith in me. Listen, being rescued, being redeemed, and being forgiven comes by faith. By trusting in Jesus Christ... We receive those benefits which he obtained when he died and rose again. We don't have to do penance. We don't build up merits to qualify for these. Christ did it all. And what he requires of us is one simple thing. And that is faith. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. I put the quote in your outline because it is so good. It comes from the Puritan writer Richard Hooker, who wrote, God doth justify the believing man, not for the worthiness of his belief, but for his worthiness who is believed. Friend, let that statement sink in. That is a beautiful, beautiful Summation of the gospel. We are justified by God, before God, by believing. And it's not the worthiness of our belief, but the worthiness in whom we are believing. You know, last Monday was Memorial Day. And Connie and I went out to the Veterans Cemetery here in Bluffdale to the grave of my mom and dad. Dad died 11 years ago this August, mom died four years ago this November. It's always a moving thing to go out to that cemetery on Veterans Day, or on Memorial Day, to see the fresh graves that have been dug since we were last there, to walk through that cemetery and to read the gravestones To see who was a veteran of World War II or the Korean conflict or Vietnam or Afghanistan or they may have died in Iraq, wherever it was. But it's a very moving and compelling thing to read those gravestones. A number of years ago now, I read about a gravestone in a cemetery in upstate New York that had no date of birth, no date of death, and no epitaph. All that was on that gravestone was the person's name, and beneath it, the word forgiven. Forgiven. What I'm saying this morning is no matter what you may have accomplished in life, the most important words that could possibly be put on your tombstone is the word forgiven. Forgiven by God. And the way you are forgiven by God is appropriating, believing what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Turning from all the self-reliance and trust that so many people today have in anything and everything apart from Jesus Christ, And you put your faith in his sinless life, his substitutionary death on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave. And when you do that, the Bible says that what you are is you are rescued, you are redeemed, and you are forgiven.